Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writing to Timothy saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for your divinely inspired word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I ask you that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to help us to understand and receive your word with meekness and humility. And that word would transform us into your image. We pray this this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In our Wednesday evening Bible studies that we're now having, one of the things that I'm teaching and talking about is the importance of understanding the genre of the text. What are we reading? Because we read the text differently if it's symbolic, if it's a narrative telling a story, if it's somebody like Paul that's writing uh, instruction, if it's something like the book of Daniel, parts of Daniel, the book of Revelation, where it's uh, apocalyptic literature, we need to know that. And usually it's pretty apparent what that genre is. We've often used the example of if you read the newspaper, you approach the comic strips differently than you approach the obituaries. You understand it's a different type of writing. The classified ads uh, read differently or to be understood differently than an editorial in a paper. This section of this passage of verses, beginning with where Paul says, I believe in God, uh, and Paul writing about this, where he says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, this is a creedal or confessional or summary passage of scriptures that sums up several core New Testament beliefs about Jesus Christ. The church has had creeds since the beginning. Creeds were written over the centuries and the creeds do not rise to the level of scripture. We do not equate creeds with, with Holy Scripture. There are things like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is several hundred years old. I love the, the first question and answer. That's what a catechism is. It'll ask a question and give the answer. I love the first question and answer. I think my whole life is based upon what that first question and answer asks and answers. There are certainly, when you get down into other areas of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that I would disagree with, I would not recite, I would not claim, uh, because I don't think that they are 
correct as, as neither do a lot of other people. Why can I say that? Because that catechism is not on par with Holy Scripture. I cannot disagree with Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is divinely inspired. It is always true. It is always faithful. The church has always had creeds. They have one of the oldest, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles did not write it, but it's a summation from no later than the 4th century of what the Apostles taught. Because if somebody said, hey, what does the Bible teach? You could go through and say, well, we're going to read the whole Bible together. Well, that's not practical. So we come up with summation statements. And the, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, I'll come back to that, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I can read that and say there's nothing there that I disagree with. I think it's very fundamental Christianity. I don't know of any believer uh, that I know that would read that and say, I have an issue with that. That's it's just kind of a basic summation of the faith. When it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the reason why we can say that is, this is not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this was written 1,700 years ago. Uh, Catholic simply means universal. That is a confession that I believe in the one body, the one bride of Christ. This is not the same as what the Roman Catholic Church would be today. So I say that and use the Apostles' Creed as an example because verse 16 in 1 Timothy 3 is just like this. But in addition to it being a, a kind of a creedal summation of the faith, it's also likely a hymn or a song, or specifically it's probably a portion of a song that the people of God sang in the first century church. We do this today. It's no different. We sing great songs that stir the faith and exalt Jesus Christ. I think about the song, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We sing songs like this and they do something to us inside. It stirs something that's emotional but beyond emotion. It stirs something deep within us. Great hymns and songs, they communicate truth about God. They exalt Jesus Christ through poetic language that is set to beautiful music. And when that is accomplished, the results are breathtaking. Great is the mystery of godliness. It is no small thing to understand who Jesus is. So Paul begins this this ascent into this song by saying great is the mystery of godliness it is a magnificent revelation that we should not take 
lightly. When Paul refers to the mystery of godliness, it is somewhat of a mysterious phrase until we look at how Paul uses mystery in other writings. And the idea of mystery is prevalent in his letter to the Ephesians where Paul describes God's redemptive purposes and he says they were hidden throughout the ages. This is what he's teaching in Ephesians. They are hidden throughout the ages. They are a mystery, but now they're revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So the idea of mystery here in 1 Timothy is very Christ-centered. And once again, in his letter to the Colossians, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages, so he talks about it in Ephesians, here in Colossians, Colossians, he's saying this mystery of how God's going to do this has been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In this verse, when Paul refers to the mystery of godliness, he once again is referring to the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I would never say that we should elevate one verse over another in the Bible. In fact, I've spent a great deal of time teaching Otherwise, But there are, the reality is there are some verses, there are some chapters and portions of the Bible that hold a tremendous amount of significance, not only for us today, but it always has throughout Christianity. And 1 Timothy 3.16 is one of those verses. It is a summary, it is a statement of faith in the form of a song that reveals to us God's glory. And once again, true to form for the Apostle Paul, we don't have to wonder what the mystery is. He tells us what it is. It is the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And the, ideas, the idea continues beyond the writing of Paul, and it continues into the writings of John in the book of Revelation. Because when John opens up a book that will end up being saturated with mystery, like Revelation has a lot of mystery in it, no doubt. There's things there I still claim to understand. Lots of things in that book that I claim to not understand fully. But what I do understand is what the book's actually about because he writes it in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, he opens it, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the book of Revelation is about? It's about Jesus. The Old Testament Psalter that Brad read from this morning, uh, it was the songbook of Israel. We refer to it as the book of Psalms, but it was the Psalter. It was the songbook of Israel, and it's filled with passages like this song. Prayers, confessions, statement of faith about the God of Israel. Now, Paul is a Jew. He is a well-educated Jew in the law and the traditions. He does not lose all of that when he becomes a believer. In fact, much of that is incorporated into the way that he teaches. What he does do is come to a revelation of what all the Old Testament Judaism was about, Jesus Christ. But he does not cease becoming who he was fundamentally. He's a, a well-educated uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, and 
while Paul is very clear that the Old Testament law is fulfilled in the person of Christ, he continues in many of his Jewish traditions, and one of those traditions was to use songs to convey truth. He does it here, and he does it elsewhere in other books. In verse 16, he uses a song to communicate powerful truths about God as God is revealed in the Messiah. Now, what I want us to notice mostly this morning is the connection between mystery and godliness. Philip Towner makes an excellent argument, I think he's right here, when he says that the phrase, the mystery of godliness, forms a connection between the appearing of Christ and Christian living. Mystery, godliness, revelation, ethics. Mystery is the once hidden mystery that is now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Godliness is then asking the question, how then should we live in light of the revealing of Jesus Christ? Paul and the rest of the entire Bible are never far removed from asking the question, how then should we live in light of the glory of God revealed in Christ? That idea is as representative of the New Testament as any other big idea I can think of. Christ in us, revelation and ethics. Now, we as conservative evangelicals, and I know that's a loaded term nowadays, uh, but strip away all of the baggage that comes with that, and fundamentally that's who we are. Uh, conservative doesn't mean so much a political ideology as it does mean we have a high view of Scripture. Uh, we believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. It's inerrant, uh, and this, this is what it means partly to be conservative uh, as an evangelical. With a long history of understanding or misunderstanding holiness as a code of ethics or a code of conduct, and we need to hear and understand this relationship between the mystery and the godliness. The pendulum has been swinging both ways out of control for a very long time. We see it just go back and forth. We see this in all areas of, of life. I, I once, uh, we, we had a, an HOA at a house one time that uh, we had brick pillars that went up to the second story and on the front porch and you couldn't see behind the brick pillars. And we were selling a, a, a playset a little slide for Jackson. It was just about this big and it actually folded up into one piece and we tucked it behind the brick because we sold it to somebody online and said just put the money under the mat, you'll just come up the door, you'll see it tucked behind the brick. It was there for less than a day and I get a letter in the mail with a picture of the slide behind the brick from the HOA saying you were not allowed to have playground equipment in your front yard. I lost my ever-loving mind. Um, I finally got a hold of somebody, or somebody finally called me back. They were on vacation in Las Vegas, and I unloaded on them. I said, first of all, you couldn't even see that from the street. They would have to have been in my yard to even take a picture of that and see it. And I said, and you're, you people are misunderstanding the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Like, it's not sitting in the front yard so a kid can play on it. It's tucked behind there for less than a day. And she apologized profusely 
She had nothing to do with it, but she was the one in charge. And she said, let me just explain to you how this works. She said, we, we get to be so loose and non-enforcive of the HOA policies and we have the HOA meetings and people come to them and the neighbors complain and say, we're paying all these fees and you people aren't enforcing anything. She said, so the pendulum swings the other way. She said, then we have people who, you know, their job in the neighborhoods to enforce this and they just become way too particular about these things. They're, they're not using common sense and all of this. She said, so the pendulum just swings back and forth. That's the way it is in life. With the idea of godliness and the mystery of the revelation in Christ in terms of how we live, the pendulum sometimes swings left. And you have a grace covers it all, sloppy love, live any way you want, wear anything you want, drink anything you want, name it and claim it. Jesus just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, happy, and wise. And it makes Jesus this cross between Santa Claus and a genie in a bottle. And that is deadly and it is destructive. So the knee-jerk reaction is to swing the pendulum the other way. And we overcorrect. And now he says, well, Jesus saved you, but here's a list of do's and don'ts. And uh, make sure you have a long face and, and do this and don't do that. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get eternal life if you catch God on a good day. God saved you by the gospel, but you're going to be kept saved by your conduct. And that, too, is deadly and destructive. So what, what's the, the biblical medium of this? Um, a man said to me recently, he said, I was raised on the East Coast where it was hellfire, and uh, then I moved to California and it was a little kumbaya, and he said, seems like here in the Midwest it's just kind of just right. And it's like, that's what we're going for here. It's like, what's that happy medium look like? If you live your life not sloppy, but not legalistic, but rather grateful and thankful that Jesus stood in your place on Calvary, He was your propitiation, the sacrifice of Christ, absorbed the wrath of God for your sin upon His body, if you live your life understanding that the revelation of the mystery that was hidden for centuries to the entire world, but is now revealed to us as the people of God, we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. If you live your life under the beautiful weight of God's glory, your ethics will respond in return. And you will live a life of true holiness and you will be godly because of this mystery. And you will not live a clean and ethical life to be saved, you will live it out of response to God having already saved you. There is a huge difference. If your eye is always looking down at the line of how far can I go, how close to the edge can I get, if the question is asked, can I still be saved and do this, we're probably asking the wrong question. But if our eyes are lifted up to the author and the finisher of our, our faith, and we don't ask the question, can I be saved and do this, but rather ask the question, can I do this and still please God? Is God going to be pleased by this? I think we actually live life further away from the edge asking that question. 
because now I'm not trying to get close to the edge. I'm turned around. I'm looking to Him. I'm, the psalmist says that God dwells in a light that no man can approach. And I'm looking into that, that ball of blazing glory, saying, how close can I get? How close to the center of God and His glory can I get? I think that's the medium, the happy balance of what it means to live godly. Now, that was actually the preface to the, to the creed, to the song. Paul's not even there. He's, he's framing the song, the creed, with this idea of mystery. But now Paul explains the mystery. This, this is where you, you need to see the connection between the song and the phrase, the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness, and now he's using, he taps in, he employs this creed to unpack and explain the idea of the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I'll take those phrases just one at a time briefly. He was manifested in the flesh. We have heard it so many times that it does not baffle our minds and stretch our understanding like it should. God became a man. He didn't become like a man. Don't cheat the humanity of Jesus Christ. I often say we are rich in the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but we are anemic in the doctrine of His humanity. So I don't think it's... I don't think we struggle with the divinity of Christ as much as we do the idea that he was a man. He walked among he walked down the street, past people, got up, ate breakfast, for years worked a job. The greater miracle was that deity in flesh is walking among people and people don't even recognize him. He's he just he's there's nothing exceptional about him. There's nothing on the surface that's extraordinary about Jesus. Even when he steps out and proclaims his identity, he gets mocked. Is this not the carpenter's son? We've known this guy all of our lives. Who does he think he is? This is what ends up getting him killed. He, it was and is both God and man. Hebrews 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need." We read that, I hear that verse 16 quoted a lot. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Well, I didn't invent this saying. It's been said for a long time by a lot of people. But when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what it is there for. Because it's referring to something before it. This is why we read Scripture in context. So let us therefore, it doesn't say let us come boldly. That word therefore is important. It's Referring to something before that. And what is before that is, Jesus was a man tempted in all points like as we are. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace, because He understands. He gets it. He understands what it means to be human. 
that is, that just, it stretches my mind. He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus is the God-man. The second phrase, vindicated by the Spirit. This word vindicated often is translated justified in the New Testament, so it's the same base word. It just gets different translations depending on how it's used and what it means. In this context, it's better defined as vindicated, just simply meaning uh, to be shown right. We all love to be vindicated. We love it when you know, we're arguing about something and we get vindicated or you know, we're, we're falsely accused and we get exonerated. It's like, I was shown to be right. That's the, the sentiment of this passage. The work of the Spirit of God upon Christ vindicated Him. Luke 4 says Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit even upon the life of the man Christ Jesus, and it vindicated him. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that of Nazareth just kind of emphasizes his humanity. He was a man that was, had a hometown, he lived somewhere. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are also witnesses of all this that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That passage in Acts is just full of the working of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, so he's bringing in the Old Testament, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. There's a real correlation in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit falling when they talk about Jesus. If you ever notice that, but in Acts, there's just, you preach Jesus, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And in these verses, the sovereignty of God is at work through Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. So it does teach that there is a, a identity of Christ that is human, and in His humanity, He had to be led of the Spirit and full of the Spirit of God. And it was the Holy Spirit that vindicated Christ by raising Him from the dead. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Christ. That next phrase, seen by angels. This is likely a reference to the supernatural element of Christ's ministry on earth and a celebration among the nations of His resurrection. Proclaimed among the nations is the next phrase. And King James, the way I was raised hearing it, he was preached among the Gentiles, same idea, proclaimed among all the nations. This is broadening it out outside the scope of Judaism. The gospel message must be preached, proclaimed, heralded. It's 
good news. King Jesus has come to save you from your sins, and if you are righteous in Christ, you are part of His eternal kingdom. Our calling as the people of God is not complicated. Preach the gospel and make disciples. That's our calling. And there are no disciples without the preaching of the gospel. We have a personal calling for our area, but there is still a great need for the gospel to be preached around the entire world. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group, every ethnicity, every demographic of people need to hear the gospel. And do we really have a sense of how big the world is and how much every individual in this world needs God, regardless of race, language, culture, income level, people need Jesus. And let there be men and women, young and old, who will resist the gravity of the American dream and join the Apostle Paul by saying, it is my desire to glorify God in my body, whether by life or whether by death. Paul gets to realize both of these. Paul lived his life glorifying God in his body, and when the time came, he is executed for the gospel's sake. It doesn't matter. Just let my life count for something more than making money or reputation. Let my life and your life make the name of Jesus great, whether it's in our backyard or on the other side of the world, make Jesus great. Believed on in the world, the next phrase. Jesus Christ was born into this world just like everybody else. Going back to his humanity, there were a few shepherds in a field, there were a few sages in the Far East who took notice, but the rest of the world, they had no idea that God in flesh was among them. He was deity in flesh uh, that, as I said before, walked among people, born in obscurity, without pedigree, without wealth, without apparently any formal education. His parents were very ordinary people. They were the Jones and the Smith that lived on a street just like everybody else. He grew up in an ordinary town in an ordinary way. But 2,000 years later, after his birth, millions upon millions of people have been transformed because of the man Christ Jesus, because they see him as the way, the truth, and the light. And there is no saving faith without believing in the gospel. And there is no hearing of the gospel without the preaching of the gospel. And there is no preaching of the gospel without a preacher. We need gospel preachers. People who proclaim the good news of what verse 16 is teaching us. The Bible says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Jesus said, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Don't underestimate the power of biblical belief. Every person ever born was born an unbeliever. And the God of this world, according to Paul, lowercase g, he's the little g, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. This is how spiritual warfare works. People's minds are blind to seeing glory. If you've ever 
visited, it's been many years since I've visited uh, any kind of art museum, but I know I've been in an art museum before and walked up to something that is supposed to be spectacular. It's worth a whole lot of money. People come here to see it and I'd stand there and I'd look at it and go, I don't get the joke. I don't understand what the appeal is. Maybe it's because I don't know art. Maybe it's because I don't, I don't know what it is. But my mind is blind to seeing the beauty of this particular piece. Now, that's not true for everything. I've seen paintings that I thought were extraordinary. But I've seen other things that, you know, if, if the Mona Lisa wasn't such a big deal, if the Mona Lisa were, somebody wanted to hang that on my wall at home, say, you know, I, I think I'll pass. Uh, I, I'm not, I, don't get, I don't get the appeal. Um, but yet, I, I suppose it's probably the world's most famous painting and worth, I'm sure, millions of dollars. But you just you see things and you're like, I, I just don't see what other people see. When it comes to God's glory, God's glory is real. It is the greatest reality in the universe. It is the ultimate reality. Everything flows from the glory of God. The thing that I've been trying to, as we started our Bible study on Wednesday night, that I've been and starting in Genesis 1, I'm, the thing I'm, I'm trying to get across is the most important thing to know is that God is the Creator. All matter, life, everything originates from Him. I think you, think you have to believe that to, to be a believer. Like, like God is the origin of, any, of everything. Before anything existed, there was God. Like There is no such thing as eternal matter, eternal substance. There was a time when there was only God, and from everything that has ever existed comes from God. But people don't see that. People don't. They're blind to the glory of God. I think about people like Stephen Hawking and... Carl Sagan and people like this who, especially people like Hawking, who had um, an, an understanding of, of the universe that unless you are, unless your math skills are just mad, you'll, you'll never reach there. I mean, people like that, that their brilliance is, is beyond comprehension, but yet they never actually saw what you and I know and see. They, they missed the point that all of that now, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. You walk out on a starry night, look into the sky. We should see God's glory. Like that's what that's screaming back at us, is that this is the glory of God. But people in so many ways miss it because they are unable to see spiritual light. They were born blind. If you believe what I'm preaching today, it is only because God has opened your eyes to see the beauty of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having a belief in God or faith in God doesn't seem to be groundbreaking until we understand the opposite is unbelief, no faith in God. The Israelites did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. It wasn't giants, it wasn't walled cities. They did not take the promised land when they were supposed to. The writer of Hebrews says, it's very simple, it's because of unbelief. They did not believe God for what God promised. It was Jesus who rebuked the disciples in the storm, saying, O ye of little faith, 
One of the greatest prayers, I think, prayed to Jesus was the man who just simply said, help my unbelief. And I think that's a prayer we can all pray at times, is Jesus, help my unbelief. Help me to see, to really see who you really are. Paul goes on and says he was taken up in glory. We don't make enough of the ascension of Christ. We don't really talk about that. I'm talking about it just in Christianity in general. I, I, think, I think if you looked at like the Eastern Orthodox tradition, I think they are a tradition that really makes much more of this. Um, but generally in any sort of Protestant flavor, uh, we talk a lot about the resurrection, we talk a lot about the second coming. We don't talk that much about the ascension. But early on in the church, it's apparent that they did because in this summation of faith, they insert this phrase, he was taken up in glory. Acts 1, so when they had come together, they asked him, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw, saw him go into heaven. And this song that Paul quotes celebrates that story in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ ascended, and He will again return to this earth. And the people of God in every generation have and should look for the return of Jesus Christ. Our generation should look and expect Christ to return, because He will return. I said it a few weeks ago, I said one of the the dangers, one of the problems I have with post-millennial theology is that it would appear it makes the argument that Jesus Christ could not come back today. Because post-millennialism teaches that the millennial is, is the time is now, it's the time when the, the church is going to Christianize and colonize and the world to where the world will become by and large Christianized, and then Christ will return to a, an earth that has been won for Him. Um, I don't think that finds a lot of biblical support. The support that is usually used, I think, is, um, is a misappropriation of what that's teaching, but the greatest danger of that that I see is um, that that would say that Christ would not return today or the next year or five or ten years because that's a long, you know, one of the leading proponents of this idea uh, will say you need to look at history in chunks of 500 years. You know, we, we've gotten better 500 years at a time. I was at a lecture a few years ago by one of the leading proponents of this idea and during the question and answer session it was, it was at SMU, uh, at the, the church on the SMU campus and a man that I like and read a lot of his material. I, I disagree with him on this point. And so the floor was opened up after the lecture by uh, questions and answers from the SMU students. 
and one of the SMU students got up and said, well, you're talking about the world becoming, they said, what was the Holocaust? And he said, well, that was a major setback. <laughs> I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's one way to put it. The Holocaust was a major setback. We don't generally believe and teach that that's how the, the condition of the world will be in. Um, I think we find the exact opposite warrant when Christ returns. Um, but all of that aside, the important thing to know is that Christ will return again to this earth. Our generation should look and expect for Jesus Christ to come and return. Every believer who has gone on and died will experience a resurrection of their physical bodies. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Like the body is like a seed that goes into the ground, it's planted. And at the return of Christ, that body is going to be raised again in the resurrection. And there is a reality that is more real that the illusions of reality in our world projects every day. The return of Christ is a reality that will happen. All of this in this song. Paul uses six verbs. Like, who knew verbs could be so exciting? But they are here. Six verbs to describe Jesus. He was manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed on, taken up in glory. Manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed on, taken up. Six of these action items. This is what Jesus is. This is who He is. This is what happens to Him. This is what the effect will be upon our lives. And if you make your life Christ-centered, not religious-centered, not denominationally-centered, not faith-tradition-centered, if you will make your life Jesus-centered, all of these things will be a reality in your life. The secret to Paul's success was that he was a walking dead man. He died on a road to Damascus, and he died to Jesus. So the life that I now live, it's not my life, it's Christ's. It's like for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's like, it's not I, but Christ that lives within me. I mean, Paul's whole life is just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he shows us this. He's like, this is who Jesus is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Holy Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in all the world, and He was taken up into glory. That is our Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have gazed into your holy word. We have looked at a writing 2,000 years old, but yet as fresh and relevant as it has ever been. We thank you for this revelation. We thank you for uh, 
the man Christ Jesus, walking among us, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit that was sent 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost that now resides, lives within every believer. And Lord, we earnestly await your return. We join the throngs of the millions over the ages who have said, Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer this morning. Lord, we live in a dark and wicked world. We know it always has been. But we live in a dark time. And while we proclaim the gospel and preach the gospel and are a light in a dark world, we know that things will not always continue as they are. This is all very temporary. That you will come. Your name will be vindicated. Your name will be honored. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. And Lord, as we eagerly await that day, Lord, we, we live life every day in anticipation and in the shadow of your soon coming. I ask you this morning, Lord, that you would manifest yourself in even a greater reality among your people. Touch us, minister to us through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll close this morning in song. God bless you this morning. Thank you.